Hey, I am so happy you're here. We are in week four. We're going to finalize a series that we are calling Balanced. And this whole series is based off of this. Um, Maybe six months ago, I was reading through the book of Luke. I came to Luke chapter 16, verse 13. And I had read this a lot of times before. But for some reason, it challenged me in such a unique way. And so this is what Jesus says in Luke 16, 13. He says, No one can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So Jesus, in these scathing words, this dire warning, he says, there is a battle going on for the human heart. All of us. Okay, some of us, you may think, well, I've made my choice. Listen, there will be a challenge in the future. And here's what, here's what the challenge is. We either put our hope, our trust, our faith, we link our identity to money or to God. We look to money for security or we look to God for security. Jesus says there are one or two masters and we will choose one or the other. You can't serve both money and God. So he says serve God because money is a terrible master. So over the last three weeks, We've been looking at different ways that God brings people back who have been drawn into trusting money as their God and welcomes them back. What we're going to do this week is read from the book of Malachi. Now, it's a book that we often don't look, look at. It's the last book in the Old Testament. So right before the book of Matthew, Matthew is the introduction of the person of Jesus. The book of Malachi is written in 430 B.C., Okay, think, this is ancient literature. This is 2,430 years ago. This is a very, very long time ago. And the book of Malachi is unique because it's a, it's a different genre of writing than any other book in the Bible entirely. It's written, get this, like a Greek play. In 430 BC, Greek ruled the known world with their philosophies and, and their entertainment. And they really valued these, these plays. And so Malachi, who's a Hebrew prophet, he actually adapts the, the form of writing of a Greek play and he communicates to the people, this is what he communicates, they are way out of balance. Dangerously, dangerously out of balance. And so it's written in this play format, God has a part and he speaks and the people respond. God has a part and the people respond. And it's a warning from a prophet to a group of people who are out of balance because, in large part, they've chosen to put their faith in something other than God. They've chosen to serve tangible things like money rather than God. Let's uh, look at three problems, three challenges, the three challenges of um, imbalance that we see in the book of Malachi. First one comes from chapter one, and it's this. The people have become skeptical of God's love and goodness. They've become skeptical of God's love and goodness. I think most people in the room at one time or another, maybe you're new in your spiritual journey. Did you guys, oh, there it came back. You're unresolved in what you believe. But probably most of us have gone through a period of time where we've asked this question. Is God really loving and is God really good? And when do we ask that question? We ask that question when we are in pain, 
when we are going through things that seem very, very difficult, when our hearts are broken, when life seems empty, God, do you really love me? God, I have been praying and it doesn't feel like you are answering my prayers. And so they've been skeptical concerning God's love and goodness. In fact, here's a verse that says this. I have loved you, says the Lord. It's emphatic. It's a statement. God says, I have loved you. Not, I might love you. He goes, I love you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? God, the, the things that I'm experiencing right now make me question your love. Make me wonder whether or not you actually care. And so they're skeptical concerning God's love and goodness. Here's what that leads to. Uncertainty regarding God's love for me will always lead to self-preservation. Uncertainty concerning God's love for me will always lead to self-preservation. Let me explain that. If I am not positive, if I'm not sure that God is loving and that God is kind, I'll never have the faith to step forward to trust him. If I wonder if God is actually disinterested, if he's removed, if he's uncaring, I'm going to hold back and I'm going to preserve because I have to rely on me. So it's the first area of imbalance. Here's the second area for them. They become careless or nonchalant in their worship. Careless or nonchalant in their worship. So in the Old Testament, the books that were written before the life of Jesus, there, there was a way for people to deal with the reality of sin and shame. So most of the New Testament is about this. We're about ready to celebrate Easter. Is that human failings created this terrible divide between us and our creator. And so Jesus comes and he says, for every sin that has ever been committed, for all the sins that are currently here, for my sin, for your sin, for the sin of future generations... He says, what I will do is I will absorb that. I will live a perfect human life, a life that no other human can live. And I will die in humanity's place so that they could be forgiven and reconnected with God. That's what Easter's all about. But before that, in the ancient world that we're reading of, God had set up a system where the people could deal with sin and shame because they walked around with this sense of, oh, I know what I've done. I know I've failed God. I feel so ashamed. And so it was this ancient sacrificial system where you took something of value. It was grain or it was a live animal. And you said, God, I I know that I have failed you. I know I am separated from you. And so would you take this? If it was grain, it would be burned up. If it was an animal, its life would be taken from it. And it would die in your place. All of those things waiting for the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. And when you walked away, you say, thank you, God. Something died in my place. I don't have to feel the shame. So they've become careless and nonchalant in their worship. Let me read to you from chapter 1 of Malachi. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name, Lord? We're not... We're not doing anything that bad. God says, you're in balance. You've shown contempt for my name. He says, by offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? God says, by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, 
Is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. So here's what hap- what's happened. They're uncertain of God's love and forgiveness. And now they're beginning to compromise in terms of their worship. So the book of Leviticus sets up, this is how a sacrificial system works. Guess what you took to sacrifice for your sins? You took the best, the best grain, the, the grain that would bring the most at the market. You took the finest lamb that was born in your flock that year. The, the lamb that genetically you wanted to keep it because you wanted to increase the quality of your herd, you took that lamb. But here's what's happening. The people are experiencing imbalance. So they're looking around and they're like, oh, it's time to worship. Hey, hey, didn't we have some grain? Like has some sort of fungus, right? We could never sell that. Let's give that to God. And then they're looking at their, their herds and there's lambs and they know it's time for sacrifice. And there's like, you know, the ugly duckling of all lambs. He's three-legged and that, you know, and. They're like, we definitely do not want him to genetically perpetuate himself. Like, bring that lamb. And so they're bringing less than the best. They're compromising, and they're saying, oh, here, God, we're so sorry. We really love you. Take this guy. (laughs) See you, bud. Right? There's no attachment. There's no. So they have no honor for God. It's a point of imbalance in their lives. Now, (laughs) this week... Oh, my boss came out. It was so kind of him. His name's Dave Veach. He lives in Seattle. He came out for our dear friend, uh, Ben Blakesley's memorial service. And uh, Dave took me out to dinner on Monday. And I, I don't know, you guys ever go out to dinner with your boss? You like wait for them to order because if he's going to get like a cup of soup, you know, yeah, I'll have a cup of soup too. But we went to Jake's. He likes Jake's and he ordered a steak. So I'm like, I'm getting the full rack of ribs, right? (laughs) So I order like this full rack of ribs and it's just glorious, but I can't finish it. I come home, go right to the refrigerator and put the, it's like half a rack of ribs in there. And and my son Garrison, who's 17, he's six foot four, 240 pounds. He uh, comes in, he goes, dad, where were you? I said, oh, I was out with uh, my boss, Dave. We went to dinner. He goes, where'd you go? I said, Jake's. He turns around and heads to the refrigerator. Right? He, I, I didn't say there were leftovers. He's just hoping and anticipating. And he gets the styrofoam thing and opens it up. And he's like, uh, puts it in the microwave, heats it up. The smell then brings his brothers out. And they're like, where's ours? And he's like, I got the leftovers. This boy is fine with leftovers. Like, it doesn't matter. God's not fine with leftovers. There's this imbalance where they're careless, they're nonchalant. They're, they're not sure God even loves them. They don't prioritize them. They're like, God, we'll just give you whatever's left. Here's the third point of imbalance in their life. They become stingy in their giving. They become stingy in their giving. And, and God has to write this scathing letter to shake them. Here, here's what we learn in terms of their giving. Chapter 3 of Malachi, verse 7 through 10. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and not kept them. When he speaks of that, he's actually speaking of the financial system 
that God had set up. How were they, they were to prioritize their money. So he says, return to me. Return to the way that I set it up so that money could never be your God. And then I will return to you. You'll find I haven't gone anywhere. You've wandered. And when you come back and you say, hey, we refuse to serve money. We put our trust and our faith in God. You'll find that you've come back to me, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, well, how are we to return? How do we get right with you, God? God says, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you, God? In tithes and offerings. Two types of giving in the Old Testament. The word tithe means a tenth. Offerings is just things I graciously and willingly give to God. So God says, you are under a curse. Now, for a bunch of us, right, what just came to your mind was something from a Harry Potter book, right? You know, a wand. A little bit different when it comes to this biblical perspective of what a curse is. God is saying this. I created an environment where I could be your God and you could follow me and money wouldn't have power over your life, but you're living outside of it, so you're living outside a blessing, therefore you're living in curse. Okay, you're living in a realm, you're operating where money's your master and it inhibits the blessings I can give to your life because you are robbing me. You're living under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me, bring the whole tithe, the whole tenth into the storehouse. And this was a place in the temple where people brought one tenth of all the grain they raised. And what happened? They fed three, three groups with that, the orphan and the widow and the foreigner. It says, bring your giving to the storehouse so that the poor can be fed, that there may be food in my house says the Lord. So here you have this nation that is so out of balance, so out of whack. They're so serving money. What do we do? I want to give you two things, two things from the rest of the book that help us get back on track, help us find balance. Here's the first thing. We just read it. Don't rob God. Don't rob God. Now I know that sounds ridiculous because I think it'd be a little bit hard to rob an all seeing, all knowing Reality, right? Like, God, I'm trying to sneak up on you. He's like, can't do it. I knew. How do you rob God? God says, this is how you're robbing me. I set up a way to live your life that would keep money from ever owning you. And you're refusing to do it. And therefore, you are robbing me. You're robbing me. Now, what does it mean to rob God? I, I, I want to perhaps draw this. Um, I'm just going to give you three references, but it would be countless references as God is setting up these, these people, the Hebrew people, the people of Israel. They're, they're leaving Egypt. They're starting their own constitution, their own values. God builds an economic plan into their life that says this is how you keep from ever letting money be your master. You read about this in Leviticus chapter 19, Leviticus chapter 23, Deuteronomy chapter 24. I'm going to give you this as an illustration. Imagine that this is a section of land. Okay, most Montanans, ladies, I got to talk to you. Okay, the United States is divided into sections, which is 640 acres, one square mile. 
You didn't know that from LA. You're in blocks. You're divided into blocks. The United States is divided into sections. It's 640 acres, one square mile. Okay? This is what God said. He says, listen, as you lay out how you're going to live your life financially, I've got a plan that is going to keep from money ever owning you. He says, here's the first thing we're going to do. I'm going to take the edges of your field. And in all those scriptures I just mentioned, here's what you're going to do. You're going to avoid ever harvesting the corners of your field. So when it's time for the harvest, it's been a good year. We've got barley. But remember, but remember, God said, never harvest the corners of your field. Well, why not? I worked hard to get the whole thing to grow, all 640 acres. And now we have to leave all these acres behind. Why? Here's what it said in all those passages I just mentioned. It says, those corners are provision for the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, and the Levite, the priest. They don't have land. And so when it comes to harvesting, you are going to leave a portion of your harvest behind so that people who do not have can benefit. Now, there's all kinds of tension about social welfare. I get that. Different opinions, different political parties have different perspectives. I'll tell you what. I love that some 6,000 years ago, God set up a welfare system. He knew that there would be people who never had enough. A foreigner could never have property. But this is what God said. He said, you're going to invite their involvement. So you don't harvest the corners and then go deliver it to those in need. He says, you leave it behind. And so that, that widow, that single mom who has been struggling, she can't buy property, but you know what? Her kids can watch her leave in the morning and she can go out to that field and this was left for her and she can work all day and she comes back with a basket full of grain and it gives her a sense of dignity because she was involved in the process. And the man was involved in the process. They can't raise their own land. You'll leave something behind. This is how you're going to operate your, your time economically. You divide it up. Then there's an even more ancient principle built into the economy of the people that would keep money from ever being their God. And it's this whole tenth thing, this whole tenth thing, this tithe. This goes back all the way to the book of Genesis. Now, I'm not very good at proportions, but we're going to say that that's one-tenth of the field. God said, I want to keep your hearts from serving money. And here's how you're robbing me. You're looking and you're saying the whole thing is mine. God says, if you would take the first and the best, ten percent, the first and the best, and give it to me, it'll keep your heart from trusting in money. And if you would create margins in your life where you would leave behind something for the poor and needy because you can consume it all. Guys, what we live in an incredibly consumeristic society. Capitalism, I, I love where we live. We are blessed, but we are taught to do what? We're taught to do what? How many of us actually 
are harvesting more than we planted. It's called debt. Did you know that the average American spent a dollar and 12 cents for every dollar that they earned last year? I don't have anything to leave behind because it's, it's all gone. And, and actually I spent more than I even made. So there's no margin left whatsoever. So this is what God says thousands and thousands of years ago. And I know this may sound so different for some of us. You're new or you're trying to figure out what you believe and you're like, what in the world? And God says, there's a battle going on for your heart. And whether you make $1,000 or $100,000, the way you keep your heart from ever serving money and you keep serving God is you set up a system and you predetermine what it'll be. Because if you do not predetermine what happens, where does it go? I harvest the whole thing. <laughs> I'm like, oh, good year. But God says, this is what you do first. If you do this first, it guards your heart from money becoming your master. Don't rob God. Here's the second thing. Believe that God wants to open the floodgates. Okay, He wants to open the floodgates of heaven. I want to read chapter 3, verse 8 through 12. Okay, God wants to open the floodgates of heaven. This is... Uh, follow-up. God says, don't rob me. And then he says, test me in this. Give it a try. Give, see if I haven't established a principle that will bring health to you. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Tell then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land. Now, I think that's a funny description. I don't know what a delightful land is, but apparently it's like, we're all filled with delight. <laughs> right? You test me in this, your land is going to be delightful, says the Lord Almighty. We are told repeatedly in the Bible not to test God. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Living like this, he says, you just try me. You just try me if this is a way that frees you up from money being your master. I want to show you a couple of pictures. We got to think about this in context. This is Malachi. This is Hebrew. Okay, this is a picture that I grabbed from Israel. Okay, it's uh, near the Jordanian border. And this is a big billboard sitting out in the midst of this arid, arid place. And you know what this says in Hebrew? It says, this land is being prepared for agriculture. Look at it. Okay, there's a little, put that back up on the big screens if you would. There's, there's like little barns and little like green like trees. What's it going to take to make this land ready for agriculture? This is an arid place. It's going to take water. It's going to take irrigation. Okay, that's what it's going to take. Let me show you another picture. This is not far from where this picture was taken. This is a woman. She's standing there on the screens. You can tell that she's irrigating her garden. Things are going to grow. Here's what Israel has that surrounding nations don't. There's one thing, one thing. There's this river that flows into the Sea of Galilee and then flows 
through the Jordan River Valley all the way down to the Dead Sea. It's called the Jordan River. And the Jordan River provides irrigation to make this an abundant land. If you go to Israel today, one of the things you'll be surprised by is there's parts that look like the Dead Sea, and you're like, holy mackerel, like what happened here? When was that nuclear bomb? Okay. But then you'll go north and you'll be like, that, that looks like ag land in Montana. That looks like Nebraska. Here's why. The Jordan River. The key to irrigation is this. I want to show you this. This is an ancient find set into new concrete to help us understand. What would have been behind here is an irrigation channel filled with water. Then this is called the floodgate. It's a piece of stone that is carved, and it slides in and out. It's very heavy, so when it's down, the water's blocked. The irrigation doesn't happen. But you reach down, you slide that up, and the water flows through the floodgate and begins to bring life and vitality to the land in front of it. This is what God says. I want to open up the floodgates of heaven. I want to create an environment where things aren't falling apart all around you. Now, this scripture is so often misused. It can be used to say, and you know, here's what God's going to do. Throw open the gates of heaven and you just go, you just park your Toyota in the garage and you do this and the next morning you come out and your Toyota's turned into a Lexus. Woo! You, you, you just test God in this and he'll add a new zero to your bank account every month. It's not what this says. It says, here's what I'll do. You'll be back in the realm of blessing where money isn't your God any longer and you'll have all the food that you need and there will be a protection where the things that would come and just rot away at your life, the, the grapes falling off prematurely, I'll create an environment where that won't happen. I will irrigate what has been dry in your life. So this isn't about having tons and tons of money, but this is about having blessing and having wholeness and having protection in your life. God says, I want to open the floodgates of heaven. Test me, try me, because for every human being that has ever lived, there is a battle that happens for their hearts. Will they trust in money or will they trust in God? Will they bow their knee to the almighty dollar or the yen or the pound or the euro or will they bow their knee to me? That's the question that God asked. Because I want to irrigate people's lives. I want to take what seems like a desert and I want to bring vitality and goodness. It, there's five ways. There's five ways. I don't care what country you live in. I don't care if you make $10,000 a year or a million dollars a year. There's really five things that you can do with money. I'm going to show these to you. Number one, you can spend it. Okay, th this is natural. This is instinctual. Number two, you can repay debt because you're really good at spending it. Okay? Number three, you can pay your taxes. April is coming. You ready? Number four, you can save it. It's supposed to be responsible. And number five, you can give it. Here's the problem with this list. Me, me, government, me, God and others. 
I'm in there a lot. This is just how people live their life. It's, it's the opposite of this. I want to tell you something. This is the formula for money becoming your master. This is it. You do this, I guarantee you, money becomes your master. It's an equation that won't fail. And this probably represents a lot of our budgets. Me, me, government, me, God. Remember, my son, Garrison, loves leftovers. God doesn't. This, this whole passage, the whole book of Malachi, this is what God's saying. I dare you. I dare you to make number five number one. I dare you to reorient your life to this ancient principle that I set up that would keep you from ever succumbing to the temptation of God becoming your money. I dare you to make number five number one, where you start with not me, but you start with God. And you know what? God says, I'm not, I'm not even going to ask nearly as much as your government's going to ask for. Your government's going to ask for way more than that. I'm going to ask you for this 10%. I'm going to ask you for margins of generosity in your life. And then you go ahead and do this and see if that doesn't open up the floodgates of heaven where life and vitality come to places that have been dead and dry and barren in your life. Get away from the me first approach. Get to the God first approach. There are two things that determine how we spend our money. Number one is priorities. Number two is self-control. Right? Priorities and self-control. Those are the two things that determine my budget. If I don't have self-control, what happens? I just end up buying things I don't need. Anybody got a garage filled with things that were just so awesome at the time? And now you got to put them in a plastic box because you're like, oh, what? I, I don't know why. The, the whole idea, like spring's coming and we're going to have garage sales. The irony of it just cracks me up. That, hey, I bought a whole bunch of junk that I don't need anymore. How about you buy my junk? I'll go over and buy somebody else's junk. We'll just trade junk. We'll just drive around town trading junk. It's brilliant, right? <laughs> Priorities is self-control. If I can have self-control and I say, listen... What I love about this is this was set up. You determine where your money goes. If I don't have self-control, my urges determine where my money goes. What is my priority? God says, just do it like this. First and best, 10%. That is done, taken care of. It's non-negotiable. And then I can do this. And then I have freedom. God, you give me freedom with that other huge portion of it. I want to close with just these four statements. A couple of questions, a statement. Number one is this. At the end of this series, I want to ask you, will I control my financial life or will my financial life control me? I know what it's like to look at your paycheck and look at the bills 
And you just start to sweat because you are so afraid. When you look at the tuition bills and you look at the utility bills and you look at the credit card bills and you look at the rent and you think, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And you live your life under this constant tension of can I put enough money in all the holes? Here's the problem with that. That is your financial life controlling you. And God says, take back control. Absolutely. You may need to get out of debt. It may take a while to do it. But he says, you determine. Don't let money be your master. Because if you're answering to all the bank accounts and all the collectors, money is your master and money is a terrible master. Money will not love you unconditionally. Money will not be faithful to me. Money cannot forgive my sins. Determine where your money's going to go. Second thing is this. When we reduce all of this down, Okay, I'm talking about today, the book of Malachi, the last three weeks. This is about lordship more than tithing. I get it. Some people get upset when you talk about tithing. Is it different in the New Testament? And I go, oh, yeah, it's worse in the New Testament. You'd like this. Jesus like, says, give everything. It's crazy. This is about lordship, not about tithing, because God doesn't need your money. He's doing better than Buffett. Bill Gates needs a loan from God. You know, that's, he doesn't need your money. What does he want? He wants my heart. He wants my heart. This is about, do I bow my knee to the God of capitalism and stuff and I find hope, I find fulfillment and just more and bigger. Or do I bow my knee to Jesus and I say, you are Lord and money does not have any power over me. I'm grateful for it. I'll be a good steward. I'll be balanced in my financial life, but I refuse to bow my knee to money. I will only bow my knee to God and God, this is the recipe that helps me get there. Number three. Know this, this is one of our core values. God is generous, so we are too. God is generous, so we are too. Do I believe that God is generous? Because here's a lot of people's perspective. God is, um, he's perpetually disappointed in them. He's always frustrated. And God is stingy with his forgiveness. And he's, he's stingy with his kindness. And he's stingy with his blessings. And he's actually, he loves to cl- close the floodgates. And like, oh. You're so dry out there. Here's what I believe. God is generous. God is generous with love and forgiveness and second chances and third chances and 58th chances. And God is kind. And God, as a father, wants his children to be healthy and happy. And if I believe that God is generous, I'll be generous too. If you believe that God is stingy and angry and disappointed, you'll become just like him. But if you believe, if I believe that God is generous, I'll become like him. Lastly, do I trust God enough? Remember the the first problem that they had in Israel, from Malachi's perspective, is they're unconvinced of God's love and kindness. Do I trust God enough to test him? 
to worship him with the best and the first. I know this is so contrary to maybe what your financial planner tells you. It's so contrary to what you learned. And you're looking at this, and this is like 6,000-year-old wisdom, and you're like, ay, ay, ay. Here's my question. Do you trust God? This isn't about this church. This isn't about money. You, we pay all our bills. God is so gracious. We don't need a dime. God provides. This is, so it's not about this. This is about can I get my heart to be free from the God of money? We pray with me. Lord, this is my prayer. If throughout this room, the chains that have kept us bound to money will fall. That we would be free. That God, some of us in the room, who we've lived a certain way, and it's not that you're angry at us. It's not that you're going to punish us. It's that we just haven't been able to experience that flow of life that you want to give because we've been serving money. We've been taught culturally to serve money. It's normal. It's natural. But we choose to say, we bow our knee to you and you only. We'll make hard decisions to reprioritize so that money has no power over us because we serve you and you alone. Help us to truly trust you. Will the floodgates of heaven open? And would you bring life to areas that have been parched? as we realign our lives to prioritize you. I pray for growth. I pray for a springtime. I pray for a joy and a happiness and a contentment that we have never had before because you're our master. If you keep your eyes closed for just one moment, I want to make one more invitation. If you're here and maybe you'd say, Nate, my first step is... I need to surrender my whole life to God. You're talking about my finances, but I need somebody to forgive my sins first. I need somebody who would call me son, who would call me daughter. I need somebody who would accept me as I am. I want to surrender my life to Jesus. If that's you, would you do something? I ask you, it's going to take some courage. You just raise your hand, wave at me, and make eye contact with me. If that's you, just say, I need Jesus today. Yes, ma'am. You're his daughter, and you are forgiven. He loves you. Yes, in the back, you're his. It's a new start for you. In the middle section here, yeah, absolutely. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. You're sons and daughters of God with a brand new beginning. Over on my left, you're right. Okay, right here as well. Yeah, yes. Yeah, right there, sir. You're his. Yes, ma'am. You're forgiven. You're loved. You're his daughter. You're his princess. Yes, yes, ma'am. If you're in the balcony, wave at me, would you please? Okay, yeah, I see your hand. Yeah, I love it. You're his, you're forgiven, yes. Yes, you're made new. Yes, sir, I see your hand. Yeah, right there as well. You're his. Yeah, right there, beautiful. Oh, I love it. 
I love it. Hey, everybody, would you, would you just applaud for a whole bunch of people who just got a new start and a new day? Oh, I love it. I love it. Hey, it, when you raise your hand, I want you to head after service is dismissed to one of these I Have Decided banners. Um, there's some material I want you to help to start to grow.